You ever heard the expression, like father, like son, fellas? Ladies, have you ever heard the expression, mirror, mirror, on the wall, I am my mother after all? If you're laughing, fellas, you might already be in trouble. We just started. The older you get, the more you look like your mom or your dad and your mannerisms and your likes and the way that you act and the way that you walk. For better or for worse, we take on as children the likeness of our parents. We often mimic their behaviors. This morning, I want to talk to you about family resemblance. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 1 through 17 as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. It's page 978 on a Bible near you if you need it. Turn there. Today, I want you to see how God's children should resemble their heavenly Father and their Savior, Christ. And when you think about resembling God, you might rightly conclude that, man, there are some incommunicable attributes that God has that we shouldn't mimic, that we can't mimic, even though we often try, right? I mean, we try often in our lives to be all-powerful. We believe that we don't need any sleep. We believe that we have the power to change our circumstances, and we fall on our faces when we do that. That God is all-powerful, and we are not. We think that we're in control. We think that we are sovereign over our own lives, the lives of our children, our work lives, and yet we find out really quickly that even though we schedule everything a certain way in our lives, it rarely falls out that way, and then we can't figure out why we're frustrated when life doesn't work out the way we want to control it. And so there are some ways in which we're not to resemble, and we shouldn't try even though we often do to resemble God. There are ways, communicable attributes of God, there are ways in which we ought to bear family resemblance as children of God with our heavenly Father and with our older brother, the Bible says, in Jesus. How should we walk like God walks, like Christ walks? And let me ask you the question this morning, would people say about you, you have family resemblance with God? I mean, would people say, fellas, like father, like son? Ladies, would people say, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am a lot like Jesus after all. Would people say that about us? Or would people say this? Would people say, really? Unless you would have told me, I would have never put you together. There's not a family resemblance. How much family resemblance as the people of God do people see in us with our God? That's the question for this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. We come to chapter 4. Remember in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are about the measurable riches of God's grace that he's lavished upon us, that he's granted us in Christ. We were dead, now we're alive. And then chapter 4 through 6 really make a break and say, here's who we are, but how ought we live? And you come to chapter 4, and Paul begins to use this word, walk. Walk in unity, walk in peace, walk in love. Don't walk like the unbelievers walk, the Gentiles walk, 
And then we come to chapter 5, and he's going to use this phrase in three particular ways this morning. Ephesians 5, three particular ways that I want to show you this morning that God's children, if you know the Son, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in Him, ought to, ought to resemble Him by the way in which we walk. Do we follow in his footsteps? Let me just read the first two verses, and we're just going to walk through this text together. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, God's word says this. Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimic him. Mirror him as beloved children. And walk, here it is, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, through your first thought this morning is this, from verses one and two, we resemble the Son when we walk in sacrificial love. We resemble the Son when we walk in sacrificial love. Just to parse this, these two verses out a little bit, the idea of this, the connection here where it says, therefore, is to the previous passage and really the previous few phrases that you ought to forgive because God has forgiven you. But So because of the cross, we ought to imitate God in what way? Imitate is the idea of mimicking, that you have some family resemblance with God to imitate, to look like. In what way? In the way that you walk, in the way that you live in love. Well, how do we define love? Like, we live in a world that defines love in all kinds of crazy ways. I mean, you, you pull out a Hallmark card, and it is not love, a self-giving, self-sacrificial love. We measure love in a way that says, hey, if you do this, this, and this for me, then I love you. That's the Hallmark card. But that's not the way God defines love. He's defining love with the model and person and work of Jesus here. This is your best definition of love. We can talk about Phileo, we can talk about agape and eros. Those are all helpful ways to define love, biblical ways to define love. But Christ is the ultimate example and definer of love, that he was willing to give himself up, not a selfish love, but a self-giving love, a selfless love where he gave himself up. And look at the words that, it, that, that Paul describes and what happened in that love for us, that we were sinners and he died for us, that it was a fragrant aroma. This is what people in the Old Testament would do. They would bring their burnt offerings and grain offerings to the temple to be sacrificed to God. And if you look in the book of Leviticus, I know y'all hang out there all the time, what does it say over and over and over with these sacrifices that were given in faith by the people of God through the priests of God? It says that it was a soothing or fragrant aroma to God. And the reason that is so, and you're thinking, hey, you know, when I see death or a grain offering or a, a, an offering, that smells bad. But to God, it's a sacrifice that is pleasing because you deserve death. You deserve death, but it gives life. And so Christ sacrifices that for us, that Christ took our place as a fragrant offering to God, that the wrath of God was taken on by Christ, and it pleased God that you and I might know God through the Son. Do you know that message? As a sacrifice for us. And so our love as his children ought to mimic the Son's love for us. 
the son's love that he demonstrated on the cross. Not selfish, but sacrificial. Not self-giving in that sense. Excuse me, I, I need some more sleep. I need some more coffee. A self-giving, sacrificial love that Christ has loved us, we ought to give to others. So we're called here to walk in love. You see this. You're going to see it next week. You're going to see it next week when we come to the text on marriage. See, I gave that to Robbie next week. Husbands, love your wives. Christ, love the church, right? That's the picture. What does it look like in your life to walk in love? It looks like love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. 1 John 4 says it this way. I think we have it. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says, God is love. This is part of his character, who he is. In this love, God made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We haven't. We're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's made the fragrant offering. He's made the sacrifice on our behalf. See, we resemble the son when we walk in sacrificial love toward our spouse, toward our kids, toward those who God puts in our path, toward our church and the people of our church and the way that we serve in the way that we care, in the way that we long suffer as God has long suffered with us. You, do you know the name Amy Carmichael? Anybody know that name? She's a missionary to India. Missionary to India that served her whole life at-risk kids, kids that were thrown out. See, also India today. Millions and millions of orphaned Children, millions and millions of kids that are on the streets, that are used and abused. This is what she gave her life for. You can read a biography of her. There's many that you could read. But one of the quotes, if you just typed in her name to Google and typed quotes in, you might hear this quote that she had. You said, she said this, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Love is a verb. Love is meant to be given the same way that Christ has given his life for us, that we give our lives away to others. Take up your cross and follow me. See, God might not call you, C3. He might. He might not call you to the other side of the world to help starving children. But where you are at right now today matters it matters how you love sacrificially to others. It matters how we do that in our lives. It matters how we do that in the, our church, in our family, with our neighbors, how we do that in the church. You know, when we think about leadership, we think about leadership, rightfully so, we think about the person who's giving direction, the person who's thinking about deliverables, the person who is charging forward, and deliverables, and vision, and leadership. But when you come to the Bible, certainly as a church, 
the leaders of our church should be thinking forward. Think about the shepherd and his sheep and leading to green pastures. But there's a more elementary nature to leadership in the church that ought to be. And it doesn't resemble the culture out there. We lead with love. We care for the flock. That's what a shepherd does. They care and love the flock. And so if you aspire to be a leader, don't just think John Maxwell. Also think Jesus, shepherd, servant. So if you want to be a leader, serve. If you want to be a leader, love the people in your church. That's the way we define in a first sense what it means to be a leader a servant leader that cares and loves. If you want to be a leader in our church, if you aspire to that, the Bible talks about that, we first want to see if you're willing to serve, if you're willing to give your life for others and care for others in the flock. See, we, as believers in our church, we serve and we give. We're called to that, and yet the world doesn't define Love in the same way that Jesus defines it as we define it. Love in the world is self-love. What I want it to mean for, for me, love is love. And it has little to do with giving to others. And so that is the air we breathe. That is the air you breathe. And so you might ask yourself the question, how have I fallen into that trap of believing love is what I make it? not what I give. Jesus redefines, Paul redefines love for us here. Well, walk in love, that's the first idea. Lay your life down for, for others. Keep looking, though. Another way that we walk, so there's family resemblance. You see it here in verses 3 through 14. Walk through that with me. 3 through 14, let me read it. This is where Paul, I'm just going to tell you up front, this is where Paul kind of brings out kind of the the gloves, and he's not going to pull back. You're going to feel like you're getting punched a little bit here, but I want you to see what he's doing. We need this. This is a hard text. We need this in our lives. He's talking to the believers in Ephesus. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, nowhere, and is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, ouch, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance, strong, in the kingdom of, God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you to, to think that that's true, to think that that's okay. With empty words, man, think about our world. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a plea. Therefore, don't become partakers with them. For at one time, you were darkness. Notice, you, it doesn't say you just were in darkness. You were darkness. You were dead in your sins. Now you are light. That's identity. You're not just in the light, you are light in the Lord. Walk, second time, okay? Walk in love, what does it say here? Verse eight, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found and all this is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part, look at the stress here. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, the works of darkness, not people, 
for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. You're in darkness when you sleep. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Heavy stuff. You know how else we resemble the sun? We resemble the sun when we walk in the light. When we walk in the light of Christ. Remember about this city. If you've been with us studying the book of Ephesians, remember not only is this a hypersexual culture, by the way, we, talk, we think about how hypersexual our culture is today. It was the same back then. There's nothing new under the sun. The only thing that I would add to that is that people in this church, many of them are newer believers, and they're coming out of this secular sexual environment where that's the air they breathe, but let me add something to it that is not as present where we live in the air that we breathe. They worship the goddess Diana. Most of these people that have come to know Christ, they're coming out of a worship of a goddess Diana, and you know what? Not only was it, not only was there an over-sexualized culture, but it was part of the religious worship experience for someone who worshiped the goddess Diana. There was sexual immorality built into the worship of this goddess. And so these newer believers are coming out of that. I want you to think about that if you've ever if you've ever discipled someone that is new to the faith, new to the faith and they've come out of some junk, some dirt in their past, and we want to think that everything is clean at that point and they don't say words they shouldn't and they don't act out in a certain way, but that wasn't my experience. I grew up in the church and so I knew how to navigate church and do right and wrong, but I had much experience in the world, if you will. And when I came to Christ, I won't, I'll never forget, I think the first time I shared my testimony, and maybe I was, I don't know why I was doing it, but maybe for effect, which isn't good, some words slipped, and the brother came over to me after, and he's like, hey, that was really great, except don't say this, this, and this. Let's, let's work on that. I also dated people before, and then I started trying to date Christian girls. And that was just, a, I needed to stop trying to do that for a while. I had to figure out me. And so these new believers in Ephesus, they're trying to figure these things out. And so Paul is saying, here's what a biblical sexual ethic is. And here's what it's not. You also might have been that person as well, where there was things that you had to continue to grow and learn in. And this is what's happening, I think, in Ephesus. But you see it all the way through the scriptures, all these Sins that we need to starve. That's what he's saying. There are three things in this text, just summary, because there's like 11 verses to parse through. Let me just give you the summary. There are three sins here that Paul says to these Ephesian believers to starve, to starve out. Sexual immorality, let's just lump these together. Sexual immorality, impurity. Okay, these are sexual sins, and they're all-encompassing. The word impurity there just means all sexual dirtiness, apart from the way God has defined sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So it includes what you think and what you do. Sexual immorality is the word we get for porneia, 
Think about that word. Not just the images that we see, but sexual activity and action. Outside the confines of marriage, where it's, maybe it's with someone that you're dating, but not married to. That's sexual immorality. Maybe it's not a male and a female, maybe it's a male and a male and a female and a female that the Bible talks about from beginning to end, that that is sexual immorality. Homosexual acts are sexual immorality. The way you think. This reminds me, this text reminds me a little bit of what Jesus says. Hey, you've heard it said, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say to you what? Don't look at a woman with a lustful thought. See, Paul is backing the line up. And here's the interesting thing that we do oftentimes. We often as Christians, at least the way, the way that I look back or even look at my own heart and go, well, I'm not doing those things, so it makes it okay that I have crude jesting about sexual things or about other things. It makes it okay that I talk about people in secret, the things that they're doing in secret, because I'm not doing that. I know that's never been a thing, Right? And Paul's saying, no, don't let it even be named amongst you. Sexual immorality, impurity. And then he goes to greed and covetousness. And when I skim over the idea of greed and covetousness, I'll, in my mind, I'm always pointing to the guy who has more than me. You do that? I'm not greedy. I don't have all this stuff. Man, I'll just confess, okay? A couple months ago, a buddy of mine got some new wedges. I'm a golfer here. I haven't done golf in a while. Here we go. He got some new wedges, and you know, mine are a couple of generations old. That means like three years. And, I, and I'm just looking, and I'm going, I really want those wedges. So for the last like couple of months, I've just been researching and researching and researching, and actually the grooves are worn down some. I got me some new wedges. You don't think there's not any covetousness that goes on in our hearts as believers? It's the other person. Think about the covetousness that comes into your heart, into your life. Tim Keller, there's a story of Tim Keller who decided to do a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And his wife turned to him before the series began and said, honey, let me tell you which week you're gonna have the least attendance. You're gonna have the least attendance on the Sunday. This is New York City. Greed, covetousness, because people don't believe that they're greedy, people don't believe that they're covetous. We are. If the recesses of our hearts, we often are. And you keep going through this list, man, it's hard. There are respectable sins here, aren't there? The things that we think are respectable that aren't that bad. The way that we use our mouth with coarse jesting, filthy talk. I think about the, the bad and worse options I have when I go to the movies, if I want to see a comedy especially. It's like it's just bad and worse. You've got to figure out those things in your own life for sure. This is not an aim at legalism, but Paul takes this stuff seriously. There's no getting around it. He takes it seriously. If we want to be a people of the light, we can't walk in darkness, is what he's saying. And here's an interesting thing. There's a massive warning here. Do you see it? Look at verse 5. You may be sure of this, Christians, that everyone who is sexually immoral, meaning if you are exhibiting a lifestyle 
pervasive immorality, and it's defining you, and you're saying, this is my identity. This is who I am. I'm the guy who lives with the person. I'm the guy who participates in this way, and this is who I am. Get over it. Here's what the Bible says. Long-term, persistent lifestyle sin, it may be a mark that this, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is a stop sign warning to us. Therefore, look at, the, look at, the, look at verse six. This is, this is so prophetic in our world. Let no one deceive you, Christian, with empty words. I think the empty words here are, it's not that bad. Of course, jesting's not that bad. Greediness is not that bad. Love is love. It's not that bad. We're not loving to ourselves or anyone else. If we send the message, it's all good. There's nothing loving about that. It's death. It's spiritual death. And there's a way, a right way, to lovingly do it or for people to come to us and lovingly care for us in and through it. But this is serious stuff, according to Paul. Therefore, don't become partakers. Don't indulge. For at one time, you were darkness. So what he's going to do is he's said so far. He's said so far, look, you've got to starve these sins in your life. And he's given warning, but look at verse 4. Instead, do what? And this is beautiful. We need this. Instead, verse 4 says, instead of pursuing those things, what do we do? We give thanks to God. It's very difficult to be greedy and covetous when we have a thankful heart for what we have. My old wedges. Right? It's difficult to be sexually immoral when we're thankful for the spouse of our youth, when we're grateful for the spouse of our youth and we're satisfied there, isn't it? It's difficult to let filthy words come out of our mouths or in our heads when what fills our mouths is thanksgiving and praise to God. There's your solution. If you're going, hey, I understand that, but I struggle I struggle deeply with sexual sin. I struggle deeply with what comes out of my mouth. I struggle deeply with wanting other people's stuff. Instead, verse 4 says, this is your solution. Be thankful. Be thankful for what God has done. And you come down later and says, take no part in their unfruitful works of darkness. So he's identifying all those works as darkness. But, look at it. Instead, expose them. Let them be seen. For it is shameful even to speak of these things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Anything that becomes visible is life. Man, this is a, a difficult text, but it's also a text that reminds us that when we walk with Christ, when we resemble Christ, we walk in his light. And what are, those, what are some of the properties of light? Right? What, what, it, it's pure, and when it fills this room, it lights everything up. It certainly exposes what is there, but it reveals 
and it's pure. It also, if you're asleep, what happens at night when, you, when the sun comes through the window? You just get blackout shades. It doesn't work with my illustration here. You start to wake up, or when your mom and dad kids flip on the light and say it's 6 o'clock, time to get up to go to school. You wake up, your body naturally sleeps when it's dark. But when there's light, you will wake up. And this is what this text says. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. This is what God has done through Christ and salvation. He's risen you from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Listen, your identity... You may do some things, but that's not your identity. You may struggle with some of the sins in this text. I do, but it's not who you are. And the more you choose to walk in the light, the less control that will have over you or less power it will have over you. You ever, maybe you have to be from the country to, to experience this. I don't think so. You can see this on your back porch, maybe. When you, from your back porch, say you got a light on inside, and you flip that light on on the back porch, open the door, what do you see around the light sometimes? You see moths. Moths are drawn to the light. And maybe you don't have a light on your back porch, but maybe you struggle because they come in your house because they want to be close to the light. But what happens when you go out on your back porch and you flip the light on, and you can hear the crickets out there, you can hear them, what do they do when they, that light flips on? They run away. They run into the darkness. So the question is, are we like moths running toward the light? Or are we like crickets? And the truth is, I could probably parse out different things in my life. I'm like, well, I run to the light in this, but I really want to hide over here in the dark with this thing because I like it. I don't want it to be exposed in my life. But there is life in the exposure. The light brings life. Look at the word of God with me. Isn't that what Jesus says or John, the apostle John says about Jesus in John chapter 1? In him was life, and he was the light to men, and he exposed the darkness, and he brought light. Remember that passage in John chapter 8? John chapter 8, they're in Jerusalem, they're at the temple. And there's a festival going on. In the Gospels, you see festivals going on, Passover. The Feast of Tabernacles is going on. Anybody know what the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament is about? It's about celebrating what God did when the people of God were in the darkness of the wilderness and what showed up. God shows up, his presence shows up, and at night, in the darkness, what did he provide? He provided Light. He provided fire by night so that people could see and that people would know he was still with them, even though they've made a mess of things. He was still with them. And so they're celebrating that. There's a, at night during that week, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a ceremony, and it's a celebration to remember the light in the wilderness. It's called the illumination of the temple. And here's what would happen. They would take these massive lights and they would put oil in them and they would light up the temple, which represented the temple of God, right? God's presence. They would light the whole temple up. And there was one place that they would come and make a fire. And so all at night, every night, the temple was illumined 
that there was light shining out of the temple. And Jesus, on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, comes. And what does he say? You know the passage. I am, right? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Will not walk in darkness, but have the light of what? Life. Follow me. I'm the light of the world. Do you know that truth? Listen, if you're here today, you can't and you don't know Jesus, you can't walk in love if you've not received his love that he's given you and you can't walk in the light. You can't clean yourself up sexually. You can't clean your mouth up. You can't clean the greed in your heart up without the light of life that Christ provides for you. He's the way in which your life is cleaned up first and foremost, beyond all the extras of this, your heart, to change your heart from darkness to light. See, here's the truth. We resemble the sun when we walk in the light, the purity of light that exposes the darkness. You know, all week, I don't know why, but when I prepare sermons, like I'm thinking, I end up, the things that come into my mind, hymns, Songs come into my mind. Songs, hymns, worship songs, but also other songs. DC Talk. Anybody know DC Talk? Come on. Who's old school? Some of y'all need to go listen to some DC Talk up in the 90s. I can't help but think when I think of love and light, love is a verb. Anybody with me? I want to be in the light as he is in the light. I know I'm dating myself. I'm cool with that. I wouldn't have said it if I wouldn't. Light in the moon. So, we walk in love, we walk in the light. Look at verse 15 through 17. Last. There's something that happens when we walk in the light that illumines. Here it is. Look carefully then. Why is he saying then? He's pointing back. There's exposure with light. How you walk. Here's the third time. Not as unwise, but as wise. Here's what walking in wisdom looks like. Make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Second thought, under wisdom, understand what the will of God is. Listen, the third thought, it's right there in the text. We resemble the sun also when we walk in wisdom. Walk carefully because light exposes darkness. But light illumines our path so that we can actually walk in wisdom. You ever been in that place where you're struggling and you're trying to figure out the direction you need to head, but man, maybe the path isn't illumined as much because there's things in your life that are preventing you from seeing the light time management for kingdom things. We waste a whole lot of time on silly things, don't we? Understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't think when he says that he means some secret will of the Lord that I'm trying to discover of what he's gonna do generally in my life. I think what he means is the revealed will of God, which is what? Which the Bible says is your sanctification, walking in light, walking in love, that you understand it, that you see it, that that path is more illumined for you day to day that you walk in his wisdom. So maybe 
the next question is, okay, so how do I walk in wisdom? Who can guide me toward wisdom? Just like Christ is our guide to light and Christ is our guide to love, the Bible is really clear. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30 says this, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There it is. Christ is the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are, Christ, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Not only that, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Remember the, one of the first songs we sang today? Christ is my all in all. That's who he is. Where do you seek wisdom, C3? If you're honest, you probably confess, man, I seek wisdom and understanding right here. Because I got it. I got all the wisdom I need right here. How's that working out for you? Or I, I seek wisdom on uh, my social media reels because there's a lot of, you know, wisdom there. <sighs> Outside of myself and the world around us. Who do you seek wisdom from? This text is reminding us that we seek wisdom from God, that Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. So if you need an example, if you need the person of wisdom, there he is. And the Bible also says that if we ask him, he will give us his wisdom. You also have the body of Christ to help you when you're going, hey, I'm struggling with this and this and this. What do I do? You have this. You have the church. So family resemblance looks like walking in wisdom, walking in light, walking in love. You know, the thing about family resemblance is there's a number of other things about it. One of the things that happens in a family, you get, you get married and you have your first kid. And that first kid usually becomes your shadow. Right, moms? Mm-hmm. All, everywhere you go, that kid follows you. Everywhere you go. They walk in your shadow. And then if you have a couple more kids, there's something else that happens at least for a season. You have second child, third child, then they start following the first child. And that may be a relief to you. They start following their siblings. I've been in my family, I was the oldest. Why is this? No. <laughs> I would follow my dad everywhere. There's video, or not videos, but like tapes, I guess that. <laughs> of like me just following my dad around. I didn't even play golf, there it is again, most of my childhood until like fifth grade, but I, I, my dad had his grip on this little, his club, and I had this little play club, and I had his grip. I'd follow him everywhere. I'd follow him into the pasture. I'd go to feed cows with him. I wanted to be like him. Then my brothers came along, and they just followed me everywhere. They wanted to walk where I walked and go where I went. And today, after church, I want you to just, just stay for a minute, hang out with one another, and watch. Watch some older siblings, like seven, eight-year-old older siblings that have five, four, three-year-old siblings, and they'll be running around here, and the little ones will be trailing all the way around, everywhere they go, where they should and where they shouldn't. Everywhere. They're follow. And this text is reminding us of the importance 
family resemblance. Jesus said this. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because that's what Jesus did. He followed the Father, his Father. If you know me, you know the Father. He followed his Father in his footsteps. But the Bible also says something else about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is your Savior. The Bible also says that he is your older brother. C3, family resemblance looks like this. Walk in the footsteps of the Son, and you will resemble the Father and the Son. Walk in Christ's love. Walk in his light. Walk in his wisdom. Let me pray.